We've been in a series uh, looking at the book of uh, Nehemiah, the memoirs of Nehemiah, and uh, we've, uh, we've kind of had a, a pitiful little wall up here. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, today we're going to wrap up Nehemiah. We're going to get it finished. Uh, in, in fact, uh, to kind of, I haven't given you any visuals yet, so uh, Nehemiah, the story of Nehemiah happens around Jerusalem. Uh, God calls Nehemiah to, to rebuild the walls, and uh, Nehemiah finds out the walls of Jerusalem, his, his like psh, landing point place on earth, as the walls have crumbled, they've been disintegrated, and Nehemiah's heartbroken over this. He prays to God, says, use me. The king turns his will so that Nehemiah can be the one. It says, uh, scripture says that God's hand is on Nehemiah. Nehemiah rallies the workers and they work shoulder to shoulder to rebuild this wall, to rebuild God's kingdom on earth. And all of this happens in Jerusalem. I want to show you a couple of uh, just modern day pictures of Jerusalem. I think I've got a few up here. So have any of you ever been to Jerusalem? Awesome. This is what it looks like. Okay. Is this what it looks like? Yeah. See. He can tell you. This is what it looks like. That picture, if you pause right there just for a second, so uh, there's a temple mound in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is such an ancient city. It's, it's level on top of level on top of level, and each has a historical level. And so we think maybe at the bottom of this level, it's a little bit hard to tell, but maybe some of those stones right there at the very bottom belong to Nehemiah himself. Pretty cool, right? So the stories we read about, even this, this story... Uh, that happened maybe, what, 500 years before the birth of Christ. These, this is, these are real events and happened in, in our world and in a real place. And, and you can go there and touch it and see it for yourself. So today I just want to wrap up our, our, our series on, uh, on Nehemiah. We're going to move really fast through, uh, really through about the last four, four chapters. If you were with us last week, you know that the wall had been completed and and all of the people gather before Ezra. Do you guys remember this scene? And uh, Ezra delivers this awesome long six-hour sermon where he pulls out the book of the law and he reads it to all of the people. And after he reads it, or while he reads it, do you remember what the people are doing? Yeah, they're weeping. They've come face to face with, with God, uh, the God they've, they've forgotten. And they weep and they confess. And Nehemiah uh, is an awesome leader. He scolds them. <laughs> why are you weeping? This isn't a day to weep. This is a day to celebrate. And the famous line from, from Nehemiah, for the joy of the Lord will be your what? Strength. That's right. When we pick up in chapter 9, the, the people are assembling again. It, in fact, it's on October 31st. So for Halloween, the people of God in Israel are, are assembled they come together, and they're, and they're dressed in really strange Halloween costumes. They're dressed in burlap, and they've covered themselves with ashes, which is uh, just signs of mourning, signs of, of repentance. And in chapter 9, and verses 4 and 5, it says, The Levites instruct people. I think I have that. Maybe I have that slide back there, Stephen. Somebody throw something heavy at Stephen. Okay, never mind. It's in there. Trust me. Uh, in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 9, it says, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, for he lives from everlasting to everlasting. And so what do the people of Israel do? I know sometimes people are like, man, your worship set so long and we stand the whole time. And I'm like, yeah. Well, why do we stand so much? Well, 
that's kind of a natural response to being in God's presence. You, in, in fact, you got two responses. You can either stand or you can fall flat on your face. Which would you prefer? So that's kind of the responses when people are in God's presence. Um, so, so they stood. And again, they stand for six hours, for half a day. They stood for three hours while the book of law is read, and then for three more hours they confessed their sins and worshiped the Lord. And then they pray. Nehemiah prays, Ezra prays, the whole community come together, and they have this one extended prayer. And if you haven't spent so much time in Nehemiah chapter 9, man, you need to go and, and revisit this prayer because it's 30 verses long. They pray this awesome kind of historical prayer. Remember, Ezra has pulled out the scroll. He's read the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. He, he's read to them the whole history of God and Israel. He's, he's read to them their, the relationship. He tells the whole story. of This is how this whole thing has happened. How uh, uh, the relationship between God and his people. He's detailed it out. And when, uh, no coincidence, when they go to pray... Their prayer follows that same kind of detailed historical story. It begins by talking about a covenant with Abraham given to his descendants and, and the time that Israel was in Egypt and, and they cry out to God because of the oppression. In their prayer, it includes the parting of the Red Sea and miraculous wonders. They talk about the God who hurls the enemies, God's enemies, into the sea. In the prayer, it includes being uh, the people of God being led by, by a cloud during the day and fire at night. It talks about their time at Sinai, where God came and he touched the mountain and he, he came down and he spoke and he gave the law and the commands and they were good. And he commanded Moses, if you remember this, to obey all of them. And in this Sinai period, this wilderness period, he, God gave them bread from heaven and water from stone. And he commanded them to take possession of a special land, a promised land. You remember this? And in this prayer, it talks about how, how their ancestors conquered kingdoms and nations. They took possession and subdued nations. They took over cities. They planted crops. They dug wells. In verse 25, it says, So they ate until they were full and grew fat and enjoyed themselves in all of God's blessings. In verse 23, it says, You made their descendants, as in this great prayer, God, you made their descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land you promised. So in these 30 verses, you get this awesome history of God and his relationship with people, but there's a piece missing. There's a problem in this story, and you'll see it really quickly, is that for every high moment, for every, every mountaintop experience, every time God is incredibly faithful, there follows another event. There follows a big but, and this prayer is full of buts. In verse 16, it says, but... Our ancestors were proud and stubborn, and they paid no attention to your commands. In verse 26, it says, But despite everything that God has done, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on the law, and they killed prophets and committed terrible blasphemies. They, they made golden calves. And even after they were brought out of Egypt, Egypt do you remember what the, what the people said? They said, We want to go back. We would rather be slaves. 
In verse 29, it goes on and says, But they became proud and obstinate, disobeyed your commands. They did not obey your regulations by which people find life if they only obey. In verse 30, it's, it's super deep into this prayer. In verse 30, it says, God, you were so patient with them, but they still wouldn't listen. In every instance, they had forgotten God. And what you see in this prayer is a tragic cycle of, 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 of God blessing and lifting up and, and being present, and then the people rebelling and deserting God. And then there's a period of, of, of abandonment, of, of punishment, of them choosing the consequences of their sin, and then they cry out to God for help, and what happens in every case? God shows up again, and He lifts the people up, and He brings them into a promised land, and He gives them their heart's desire, and then what happens? They forget God again, and they abandon Him, and they build calves, and they commit blasphemies, and they, and they worship other gods. And in this story, with, with all of these buts, and in every instance in verse 17, there's only one constant. In verse 17, it says, But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and merciful, slow to become angry, and rich in unfailing love. You did not. What's that word? You didn't abandon them. For 40 years, you sustained them. In verse 28, it goes on to say, Yet whenever your people turned and cried to you again for help, you listened once more from heaven. In your wonderful mercy, you rescued them. How often? Many times. In verse 31, it says, but in your great mercy, you did not destroy them completely or abandon them forever. What a gracious and merciful God you are. So in this whole story of, of, of rise and fall, of blessing and rebellion, they, they see this whole thing happening. And in verse 32, they, their attention in this prayer turns from the past, from, turns from remembering everything that's happened to the present. In verse 32, they say, and now. And they mean in this moment, right here where, where they stood, surrounded by a newly completed wall, they say, and now our God, the great and mighty and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love, do not let all the hardships we have suffered seem insignificant to you. Great trouble has come upon us. Israel's built a wall, they've established a temple, but they still live in a land that's controlled by pagan kings. Their future is still very much uncertain, and in fact, they, they remain as slaves in this land. In verse 36, that's what it says, so now today, we are slaves. And so in this great prayer, they tell the whole history then they talk about where they're at right now in this present moment, and it all builds up to verse 38. It's the big finish. It's the big finish of this prayer. People responded, in view of all of this, in view of this incredible history of everything you've done, and in view of where we're at right now, we make a solemn promise. And, and we'll even put it in writing. Uh, it was a couple of, maybe a couple of months ago, uh, one, of the, one of our families here at church was having a pool party for their little kids, and so 
my son Cannon and Harper, our family, we went to this pool party. You know what I'm talking about. Like, and it's all the kids in the pool or whatever. And, and, and my kids love the pool. My kids love the water. Like, like it's, uh, Cannon loves the water. Like he can't, he can't get enough of it. And we were hanging out in the, in the water, and, and it, it's the same thing. Like, the dads have to be in charge of the kids in the water, and the moms are somewhere else. Like, you know, it's like they're done. They're off. You know, it's tag. Get, dads are in. So I'm in the pool, and, and uh, my kids love to be like, I, I don't know if I'm just rubbing them. I, I just pick them up and chuck them. You know, like, I do. Like, in the pool, like, they love it. They, they, they're not, you know, I just come up behind them, pick them up, throw them, you know. And do it again, do it again, do it again. So, so I'm in the pool and I'm kind of doing my normal thing and I'm just chucking my kids. And, and there's this other kid that just kind of swims right here and my instinct just takes over. <laughs> and I grab this kid, it's not my kid, and I just do what I normally do. This is what dads do in the pool. I just grab the kid and chuck him. And he hits the water and he comes out of the water and he makes this sound. It's like a and <laughs> uh, does you have this moment like, like, I just froze. Like, is that a good sound? Or is that a bad sound? And his back was to me, so I couldn't tell. And so I'm looking over. Okay, did the moms hear that sound? Can I just like swim away? I'm going to get away from this. <laughs> it wasn't my kid. I just, assume, I just assumed all kids like being chucked in the pool. I didn't know. So uh, he, he kind of, this, this kid kind of turns around and his eyes are saucer big. I'm like, okay, didn't enjoy this. And, uh, and uh, he just kind of tells me, you know, he's like, I, I don't like being thrown under the water. I don't like being thrown under the water. And he's saying this while he's backing up. He's like, I don't want to be in reach, you know. <laughs> I don't want this to happen again. And I don't know how to, you know, this is a new experience for me. This is what I do in the pool with kids. We just chuck kids. But this, no, he doesn't, he doesn't like that. He's making it clear that he doesn't like it. And, uh, and I'm the pastor, so I have to be sorry. Um, so I'm like, oh, dude, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I, didn't, I didn't know. Uh, that's, you know, that's my habit. Chuck kids. And, and I, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I promise, I promise I, I, won't, I won't throw you in the water anymore. And, uh, and I can tell, like, he, he's thinking about it. This kid, like, like, it's, you know, it's going through his brain, and he's still kind of backing up, and he's like, can I, can I trust this? You know, I promise, I, I promise, I, no, it's okay, man, I promise, I, I won't throw you again, I won't throw you again. And, and he takes a long pause, and, like, you could tell, like, the wheels are turning, and he's thinking about it, and he does this, and he says, pinky promise. <laughs> Because like a pinky promise, that's, that's legit, right? Like that's unbreakable. Like you pinky promise something, you are, what's the consequence of that? You lose a pinky? I, I don't know. Like, but, but in his brain, like this was, this was for real. This is the, a for real, like it just a promise is a promise. But this is a pinky, this is somehow bigger than a regular promise. And that's exactly what the people of Israel are doing. They say, God, in light of this whole history, you know, we've seen, we've seen time and time again our ancestors have rebelled against you. You've lifted them up. They've rebelled against you. You've lifted them up. They've rebelled. You've lifted them up. And, and what Israel is saying, what God's people are saying is, that ain't going to be us. They say, we are different. 
we're in a bad spot right now, God. We, we are slaves. We, you helped us build the wall. We re, re, rebuilt your temple. We're right here in this place. And, and we're telling you right now, if you come and help us just one more time, this will be it. Just one more time, God. We, we solemnly pinky promise that if you lift us up, if you rescue, rescue us this time, we, we will never forget you again. And in verse 28 and 29, they say, look, we'll, we'll put this pinky promise in writing. It says, all of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the pagan people of the land in order to obey the law of God together with wives and sons and daughters and everyone who was old enough to understand. Go ahead joined their leaders and bound themselves with an oath. They swore a curse on themselves. May our, may our pinkies be cut off. If we fail to obey the law of God as issued by his servant Moses, they solemnly promised to carefully follow all of the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. If you look deeper into that chapter, I don't have it on the screen, but they make five promises. We promise not to, to let our sons and daughters intermarry with pagan people. We, we promise to keep ourselves pure for you, God. We promise to honor the Sabbath. Every Sabbath, God, is, it, it belongs to you. I promise we won't work on the Sabbath. And we promise to provide everything necessary for the work of the temple. We'll, we'll make sure that this kingdom that you're building here, God, we'll make sure that it's sustained and it keeps going and that people remember you. And we promise to tithe our, our crops and our wealth and our family. God, this thing that you, you lift us up this time, we'll, we'll make sure this thing keeps going. We promise together to not neglect the temple of our God. And in all of these promises, they made five promises, but essentially they're all the same. And the, and the promise is, God, if you lift us up just one more time, we won't forget you. You, you come through this time, God, we, we will never forget you again. We promise. And in chapter 11 and 12, after this incredible promise is made, and, and you can go back and read it for yourself, man, it, is, it, it becomes an incredible time of celebration. The, the, the walls have been completed about a mile long around the, the old city of Jerusalem. The temple is back in place. God's law is being read. In 11 and 12, Nehemiah actually resettles the people. He brings the people back so they can start flourishing in this new land. And everyone has made a promise to follow God again. And so it's, it's this incredible, like, like uh, awesome scene. In fact, Nehemiah actually orders two. It's like, it's like the first marching band in history, like a marching band and choir. They all line up on the wall, like these two massive choirs with bands. They, they, they get on the wall and they march. They, they separate into two and they march in different directions all the way around the wall. And they just keep going. Pretty awesome scene, right? Praising God, singing, playing instruments. In, in, verse, uh, in chapter 12, verse 43, it says, Many sacrifices were offered on that joyous day 
for God had given the people cause for great joy. And, and, I, and I love what it says, and the joy of the people of Jerusalem could be heard where? Far away. What it should say is, and they all lived happily ever after. Because I want desperately for Nehemiah to end at this moment, right? <laughs> the temple has been restored. God's kingdom has come back. The wall has been completed. Everybody works shoulder to shoulder. There's praising and there's, there's scripture being read and people are repenting and confessing. And everyone has promised not to neglect the Lord again. This, this would be a great place to stop. Everything tied up nice and neat. And it's the perfect ending to a story. Except it doesn't. And, and I know 13 is an unlucky number, and it's an unlucky number in Nehemiah too. I wish chapter 13 wasn't there. Why can't we just end on 12? But chapter 13 is there. And in chapter 13, it begins that Nehemiah was, was governor of, of Jerusalem. He, he worked in this place, reestablishing God's kingdom for 12 years. And, and then Nehemiah heads back. So if you guys remember, Nehemiah had permission to do this great work from a king who he served. He was the king's cupbearer. And after 12 years of working for Jerusalem, he spends two years, or, or we think maybe a year or two, back under King Artaxerxes. He, he goes back to Babylon. The people are doing great. Jerusalem's established. There's a wall. There's a temple. Everyone's agreed to follow God. Everyone's promised. And so Nehemiah leaves things as they are and goes and returns to Artaxerxes. And it takes him a, a year or two, like I said, before he comes back to Jerusalem. In chapter 13, the story has fast forwarded two years, roughly. In verse 7, it says, Nehemiah says, when I arrived back, dot, dot, dot. In verse 8, he says, I became very upset. Because when he gets back, he sees that sons and daughters have been intermarrying with the people of the land. He sees that, that the Sabbath is is not being honored. In fact, there's tradesmen coming in and they're camping outside the gate so they can come in and sell and do work on the Sabbath day. He sees that the temple of God has not been taken care of. They were supposed to have singers who's, uh, in the Old Testament around the temple, they had people, their only job was to sing and praise God. That was their full-time gig. But it says in chapter 13 that the singers had actually had to go back to work in the fields because no one was supporting them. The temple of God was not being taken care of. The temple is neglected. When Nehemiah comes back, he sees that God has been forgotten. And all the promises have been broken. But you made a pinky promise. You made a solemn promise. How could you do this? Nehemiah confronts the leaders in, in verse 11. He, he says, why has the temple of God been neglected? Wasn't it, wasn't it just this sort of thing? 
You remember that long prayer you said where you said, you know, hey, God did this, and then the people rebelled, and then God brought them back up, and then they rebelled. Nehemiah says, wasn't it just this sort of thing that your ancestors did that caused God to bring all this trouble upon us and our city? In verse 21, it says, I sp- I, I, Nehemiah spoke sharply to them. Um, he, he wasn't nice. If you don't believe me, look in verse 25. Says Nehemiah says, so I confronted them and called down curses on them. And I love this. I, I wish I could get away with this as a pastor today. <laughs> he says, I, 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 I was so upset. He said, I, I just beat some of them up. He said, I couldn't, I couldn't even control myself. I just pulled their hair straight out. <laughs> Why? promise. You broke your promise to God. And then he said, I made them swear. He said, we, we made a whole new promise right here and now. I made them swear in the name of God that they would not let their children intermarry with the pagan people of the land. And in verse 30, he says, I purged out everything foreign. I, I, put, I put everything back in place. He said, I was only, go- you ever had that experience as a parent? Like you leave the room and you come back in and you're like, what happened? I just left for that amount of time and, and everything fell apart. And that's exactly how Nehemiah feels. And so after slapping some people around, pulling hair out, he puts everything back in order. And he makes the people swear a promise again. I love the, the church father, Augustine. And, and, and that's where Nehemiah ends. It's, if, you, if you read it, it's, it ends right there. I told you, chapter 12 is better. Like, I love the church father, Augustine. He wrote uh, about looking into Scripture and all that kind of stuff. He, he advised that, that while we are looking into the heart of the Scriptures, we would do well also to look with an eye to our own hearts. While we look into the heart of scriptures, we would do well to look with an eye to our own hearts. And I think if you look carefully with an eye to your own heart, there is likely something uncomfortably familiar about chapter 13 especially. When Israel says this prayer of, of blessing and rebellion and blessing and rebellion, this cycle of faithfulness and, and rebellion, that's got to ring some bells in us. Maybe like Israel, you've said, God, this time is different. God, this, if you'll just, this, trust me, God. I know, what I, I know what I've done in the past. I know how I felt. I know how I messed up. But I've changed. This time, this time is different. And Nehemiah taps into something so deep and so real that, that every one of us can relate to. It's, it's not that that we've been so incredibly, awesomely faithful to our promises to God. 
that, that each one of us have made promises and broken them. I think Nehemiah adds this last chapter, chapter 13, to remind us of one thing. He, he doesn't want this story to, to somehow symbolize how incredibly faithful we are. He, he doesn't want us to get the wrong impression about, look how faithful Nehemiah was in every instance. Look what Nehemiah was able to do. Look what God's people were able to do. They were able to build a, a whole city. They were able to complete a wall in just 52 days. I, I think Nehemiah includes chapter 13 to remind us that this isn't a story of our faithfulness, but of the incredible faithfulness of God. Nehemiah chapter 13 especially reminds us that, that there is only one promise keeper. In verse 8 of chapter 9, it says, speaking of God, and you have done what you promised, for you are always true to your word. That literally, that, that phrase, true to your word, is because you are righteous. Not only is God creator, but his character is such that he must fulfill what he promised. And there is only one sure thing. There is only one guarantee in this world. Scripture puts it this way. All your promises are yes and amen. Nehemiah says, let me introduce you to the one who is always true to his word. We are promise breakers. But God is a promise keeper. Even in Romans it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glorious standard of God. Our story isn't one of, of success and faithfulness. Our story is one of brokenness. This is a story of God's faithfulness, even to the point of sacrificing his own son to cover all our promises, to cover the debts we couldn't afford to pay or keep. So in just a moment, we're going to enter into a time of, of communion. And I invite you in this time, uh, we've got stations set up around the room. I invite you to maybe share with friends. I invite you to to meditate on the promises of God. If all God's promises are yes and amen, if, if he is unfailingly truthful, if everything he, his word says is, is true, if, if he always does what he promises, what does that mean for your life? How can you live 
differently. So maybe during this time is a, is a time for you, like, uh, like the people of Israel, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're ready to accept Jesus, to enter into a brand new relationship through baptism, to give yourself to Jesus Christ. Maybe, maybe you just are, are struggling with something, some guilt of, of a promise that you've broken. Man, we're here to, to serve you, to pray for you, and I'm just going to move to the back and I'll be there. So I just invite you during this time to this time of communion to, to consider all that Christ has done, to consider the promises of God, to consider his faithfulness. And while we have this time of communion, I'm just going uh, to play a video in the background. Hillsong did this incredible song. Uh, I know many of you know it. It's called Oceans. And uh, this video is, is kind of unique and kind of special. So I want you to have, have your communion space. But I, I just want the room to be filled with the, the words of this music and this video. Uh, because Hillsong actually traveled to the Sea of Galilee. And they take a boat out into the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And that's where this video takes place. They actually record the song on the Sea of Galilee, on the same sea where Jesus walked. They sing these words. And my favorite lyric says, Where feet may fail and fear surrounds, you've never failed, and you won't stop now. Let's pray together. Father God, we lift you up. We thank you so much for the story of Nehemiah, for these words. Some of the words from, from Israel's prayer, Father God, may your glorious name be praised. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the skies and the heavens and all the stars. You made the earth and the seas and everything in them. You preserve them all, and the angels of heaven worship you. Father God, some of us here in this space, our, our feet have failed and fear is surrounding us. We're living with some of the guilt of our own broken promises. And so, Father God, we need to enter into your promises again. We, we, need, we need your faithfulness to surround us. We need to, to, our story needs to be not about our, our promises or our brokenness, but, Father God, your incredible faithfulness God, no matter what, our, what we're facing and what our struggles are, what we're dealing with right now, you've never failed. And you won't start now. So, Father God, as we enter into this space, we remember your son Jesus and his sacrifice, his death, his burial, and his resurrection that, that righted our wrongs, that washed away our sins. that fulfilled a covenant that we couldn't possibly keep. So, Father God, bless us. Draw us near to you. Do a work on us in this time, in this space. We love you, Father. And in your son Jesus' name, everyone together says,